Welcome to the World Architecture Festival podcast. This series features recordings from the live festival and WAF's virtual events. Hear from architects and commentators discussing the latest innovations and challenges within the industry. Subscribe to always receive the latest episodes and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at World ArcFest. We are coming now to our final session in this, our first virtual WAF, and it's our keynote delivered by Jeannie Gang, who is the founder of Studio Gang, a Chicago-based firm of architects, uh, who I first met many years ago at an Alto conference in Alto's hometown in Finland of Javiskala, um, where the subject was tall buildings, and Jeannie was then able to talk about uh, her wonderful Aqua Tower project in uh, Chicago. But I quickly realized that that only represents a small part of her very broad-based intellectual practice or uh, uh, sort of creative practice in, in architecture, which seems to me to be fundamentally around ways of relating, understanding and relating nature to human activity. And of course, nature can move from raw geology or things like the migration of birds to advanced parametric analysis. And it also, of course, involves human history and the uh, relics, as it were, of human history and how they can be brought back into some sort of meaningful life. So, Jeannie, uh, welcome and please give us your lecture. Thank you, Jeremy. Um, so nice to see everybody. Uh, not see everybody, I guess. It's always fun to be together, be together at WAF Festival. So it's kind of disappointing to not be able to be with you in person. But anyway, it's still good to see you uh, nonetheless. Um, I wanted to start off by saying that, um, you know, Studio Gang's work, so much of it is about social connection. And as you mentioned, nature in the city with with projects like the Aqua Tower, for example, where people can step out and see each other um, and have relationships even in a tall tower, or places like the Lincoln Park Zoo Nature Boardwalk, where um, it's really about bringing people in connection to each other and to the world around them. But um, you know, other projects that we have worked on, the, we designed the Arcus Center for Social Justice Leadership, and that's really, you know, such an important uh, project for creating human connections um, or even the writer's theater, which is really like a civic space in, in addition to a theater. Um, so, you know, lately we've continued that work with uh, buildings like the solar carved tower on, High Line, on the High Line in Manhattan, which responds to the sun and views so people can see each other. Um, we have recently completed the Mira Tower, which also has um, extensive balconies, but it's also a place uh, with a diverse social economic uh, mix um, within one building. And then um, the Beloit Powerhouse, where it's all about students coming together in this former giant coal burning power plant. Um, recent upcoming projects are really, the, we're working on a Paris Center and and for the University of Chicago in Paris, which is, again, it's about social interaction and connection. And um, as well, this California College of the Arts, a lot of these projects are like zero carbon or net carbon um, projects that connect people to each other and to their environment. 
So in a way, for me, it's very difficult to imagine a world in isolation, which is the theme of the festival this year. In fact, I, I want to go out and say it's, it's probably not possible or maybe not necessary. Um, certainly, museums um, have, having said that, they have really changed uh, recently in 2020. It's certainly a different type of visit than you would have had in the past. I mean, uh, face coverings, advanced ticket purchases, wellness checks in the museum, hand washing stations sprinkled throughout the galleries, um, and a more limited attendance. Um, but, but I think things were already starting to change. Uh, that aside, you know, things were starting to change before the pandemic. And I think the museum future will really look very different than what we know today. So today I thought I'd do a kind of a case study of just two major museums that we have underway to talk about the ways the museum can plan for the future. Uh, you know, when, when I think about museums, a lot of people hold this idea of the encyclopedic museum in mind. You know, this idea that was born in the Enlightenment era, the idea that artifacts arranged and categorized can produce knowledge and they, they are to be displayed really for the purpose of learning. And so the issue today though, it, and the critique of this proposal in academic circles um, is really that the museum should not hold the authority to judge the artifacts. And um, these artifacts, of course, were sometimes, they were collected, but sometimes even stolen through colonization. And, and so these are all bringing um, the museum into question and, and um, on the other hand, the encyclopedic museums point to really an openness with which the visitors can compare work across geography, across time, and it, in a way working very much against the simplistic ideas of cultural essentialism. So viewing everything under one roof allows visitors to go beyond these reductive nationalistic ideas and insularity um, and really learn things that are both familiar and unfamiliar. Um, so um, today, uh, if if the museum is um, really considered a top-down institution, I wanna talk about how um, a couple of these projects, just two projects that are really in the works and both of them under construction are um, challenging that and how they're dealing with the issues of knowledge and education. Um, the first project, the American Museum of Natural History, um, is a museum that is located in New York, right along um, the um, Central Park. Um, and it started out just as one simple building um, that was located across from the park. And that was the first building um, in the late 1800s that um, was really to, to showcase um, findings in nature. Nature hunters went out and actually uh, collected items uh, to be displayed because at the same time there were a lot of challenging um, institutions that were um, putting forth false information. So the idea here was to put forth true uh, relationships of science uh, to nature. Um, this was their original 
well, after that first building I just showed you, they created a master plan in 1902 uh, that was a kind of very simple four square, four courtyard plan uh, that was meant to be completed over time. Um, what they did immediately after putting forth this beautiful straightforward plan was start to, to fill in those courtyards um, and build add-ons and power plants and various things uh, that, that started to complicate the arrangement of knowledge, their primary goal. Um, the thing about the AMNH today, the American Museum of Natural History, is really that the science is it's not a place that just holds dusty old artifacts. A lot of the work that goes on there is done outside the museum walls. They still have um, archaeologists, fossil hunters. Um, there's a lot of science going on really behind what you can actually see in the galleries, um, including work on um, uh, genome and DNA. And we, we were lucky to be able to, to tour all of these incredible back of house spaces and um, you know, science that's actually in the works happening, like an ichthyology there. Or, and then this one place where we discovered all of the scientists from the different um, sectors, the different departments, were coming together around this MRI, MRI machine, which was so interesting because one of the goals of the museum was to break down these silos between the different categories of, of science. So, so many things, interesting things are happening behind the walls that you can see. For example, you know, a scientist or a researcher who is looking at artifacts, cultural artifacts, a researcher that's looking at insects, um, they're using the same tool um, and it's starting to merge these different uh, pillars of, of science and it's starting to merge um, our, our knowledge of how things are related, which is very exciting. So uh, one of the things um, that I think will be a future museum is to um, to really reinforce these connections between the different fields of, of knowledge. Um, so here is the AMNH. Um, the yellow dot is right where our new wing is going to be placed. So um, you can see here the, the complexity of all the things that were built over time. Um, what, what we started to do was think about knowledge and how you know, organizing the building isn't essentially like organizing knowledge. So that center part, we discovered if we could just edit a few walls um, on the right, we could start to create a kind of almost like a tree structure um, that branches out in all different directions. So people could learn different things and take their pick of what they want to know, but then somehow come back and orient themselves around this center theater um, and then branch out again. So it would be the first time the museum was actually connected. Currently, there's so many dead ends and um, just ways that you can't get around in this museum. So on, on the left is the existing with all of the different parts identified. And on the right is what we proposed. So in a way, we're proposing a kind of editing of the museum as opposed to just building, you know, something brand new. I think this was a competition and it's probably the reason why we won because we we were thinking about um, how to make sense of 
the architecture in relation to the content. Um, so you can see, um, I don't know if you can see my, you probably can't see my pointer, but um, left of the center core is this um, atrium space in a kind of pink color. That is really this, this axis that we uh, found we could make a building that's really an innie building instead of an Audi building and, and to connect these different branches of knowledge around the center. And at the same time, make something like 24 new connections between the existing parts of the museum so people can fluidly move around. Um, there's an astrophysicist at the museum named Neil deGrasse Tyson, and he's, he's an amazing uh, man. And he, he coined the term Manhattan hench. Um, and here you can see a picture of it. Um, because Manhattan grid is slightly shifted, um, it turns out that um, on the sol it, it's not aligned with the solstice you know, um, event, but there's a particular event that aligns with the city grid of Manhattan. And he called it Manhattan Hedge. And people started to come out and photograph when the sun is really on axis um, in the city. And so we wanted to, um, another aspect I think of the future museum is connecting indoors to outdoors. And through this event, um, we were able to conceive of a, of a new wing, a museum. Like I said, it's an innie building. It's a kind of pulled back in, but maybe aligned with this axis that already exists in the city and, and create almost a, a structure for people to inhabit that would allow them to, to make this connection to the solar system, to the outside world and to the city and not just be an internal Focus Museum. Um, this idea of a canyon, something that is formed by flow and water and wind and time, um, really seemed apropos for this project. Um, and in, to, to understand what a canyon is, we basically took a road trip, went out to out west um, and started studying just like what is that form and why is it so compelling? Why does it make you want to explore and make you want to, um, you know, just dive in. So it was interesting that this particular canyon, we found, we looked at a lot of canyons, did a lot of hiking. Um, this particular one had a scale very similar to um, this space that we were creating in the museum. Um, you know, there's a lot of natural geography that is about flow, and this is our project. It's really about flow, moving people through, allowing them to explore and and take their own path um, so that the museum is no longer um, just dictating in a uh, linear way what people can learn, but opening up opportunities for them. Um, I've really, as Jeremy mentioned, I've been very interested in, in nature and also drawing it a lot uh, to, to, to understand it and its rules and its kind of ruthless efficiency that it has. Um, for this project, you know, it's so interesting. We, we used so many digital tools to try to create um, a structure that was um, canyon-like, but everything really turned out very um, disappointing. I guess it looked like blobs, everyone, these blobs that we see everywhere. So it wasn't working. So we, we actually started to go back to what is flow. We, you know, Chicago is freezing cold. We were doing this in Chicago at the time. 
uh, we took this block of ice and started to melt it out with um, a hair dryer and also some like a blowtorch, uh, fun tools to have in your shop. And we started to notice a lot of different um, um, forms that were not necessarily that easy to do in um, our current um, formats of technology or current uh, tools. So we we actually ended up trying writing with the consultant, writing our own tools uh, to be able to replicate some of these forms. But here you can see in sketch form the basic idea of it, that there would be these edges that can be explored. There's even a, a large theater, let's say, on the, you can see in the left in this early sketch. And there would just be a space that's kind of um, um, eroded out of or subtracted from a block. Um, and then in terms of organizing the uh, materials, this gave us a really clear uh, structure to stratify the program um, in an organized way, but also working with what was already there. Um, this final section that you see here, we're really using this structure as it is structure. It's not an added on thing. This is holding up this, this form, which is a kind of a cave-like, canyon-like space, um, is holding up all the floors that, that die into it. And of course, you know, there's this challenge of, um, of how to build something like this uh, that, that um, we started thinking about right away. Um, another thing just to note is that where this um, new entry, a completely universally accessible entry is located, um, we're also connecting into a lot of the existing programs and and just at the um, lower edge of our site, it was some closed storage um, of artifacts that um, we couldn't really move. And, and so it really became an idea to somehow curate and expose those um, elements. Okay, here you can see um, this structure, this, this kind of iconic void, if you will. And um, it is seems like it would be so hard to build, but we um, started also looking at um, ways of building infrastructure without formwork um, and, and visited a lot of underground tunnels and things like that and realized that this could be done uh, working together you know, with our engineers, of course, uh, using Shotcrete, which is basically using the um, the rebar, forming the rebar, but shooting the concrete into it. Um, so that's an image of, that's what that structure looks like that all the floors are coming into. It's this porous structure that, that encourages exploration. Another thing that came out in this project was really just the, that education today is not, is, it's a lifelong thing. And the museum is, is um, really um, supporting education from like, very young kids and also their teachers and parents, but even all the way up to um, they grant PhDs uh, to graduate students in science. So it's really almost like a university. It is a university. Um, but one of the things that came out of the science is just that people learn not only from um, 
looking at exhibits and reading, but also how they talk about it with the people that they came with. So there's a social aspect to it. So really creating this museum was about creating a lot of um, social spaces adjacent to these gallery spaces um, where people can um, talk about what they just discovered. Um, and then it fits into this historic fabric, but not, um, it's kind of complementary, but it's not um, replicating in any way the, the existing architecture, which would be hard to do because there's probably 30 different kinds of architecture represented on this, this building. But here you get a sense of um, how the light uh, will be coming in and inviting people into the different spaces. This is an example of the shotcrete um, that you can see. Um, uh, we're going for this very rough texture, raw. This is a big mock-up of how the ovals are. And all of this you know, is done without formwork. It's done by um, shooting concrete into the formwork and then trawling it off with a big long bar in a very rough way, but create these incredibly successful um, finer points. And here you can see what I showed you earlier about the buried uh, collection core, and we're going to be revealing that and revealing it in an interesting way that people can see science going on. And like I said, the, the beautiful thing about these museums is really that the collections are living because they are, you know, some of the things that we did you never really uh, know has to teach you until much later. So it's it's not about dusty um, shelves. It's really about active science going on. So here you'll be able to reveal a kind of curated version of what's behind it, and people will be able to step in and see um, what scientists are doing with the collections today. So uh, there's, there will be a vivarium, and we're working together with Ralph Applebaum on this, um, uh, living um, butterflies, and exposing their library, which in itself is an incredible thing with books by, you know, sketchbooks from Darwin and other things like that. Um, but coupling books together with um, live presentations, feeds from outside the museum, and collections themselves into one space. Uh, this is uh, the library space as it will be. Um, and again, the, the front of the building. So um, that project is underway and um, will be um, coming out of the ground in, in 2021, in early 2021. Um, it will also have this rooftop that put you on axis with Manhattan Henge once again. <laughs> okay, so the second project I just wanna show is um, another museum project we're working on in Arkansas. It's the called the Arkansas Art Center. And um, there's some similarities with the American Museum of Natural History in that it, the project really is a conglomeration, but a crazy conglomeration of buildings. Um, added on to over time, you can see all the different um, additions. What's interesting here is it's an arts, it's a museum, but it's also, um, it's also, I'm going to go back one, it's also a theater, um, it's also an art school, um, and 
they have a very special collection of drawings, but they, so they're doing many things that I think future museums want to do, but they were just, they grew organically. And you can see here, um, even that the addition on the far upper left, how it sprawls out. Um, but they didn't really, the building was working against them. Many different styles uh, conglomerated together, no clear entry, a very interior, um, um, very dark, um, with mechanical problems. Um, in order to start this project, again, it, it's almost our motto is start with what's there. And the, this was really a forensic test to be sure. Um, there were eight individual expansions um, over time. These are them color-coded there. Um, and there were eight different structural systems as well. So nothing really lined up and also the different uh, capacities. Um, a big structural analysis was done and, and it was because we, we thought maybe originally we could save uh, foundations and, and build up um, to conserve the footprint. Um, but it turned out that um, really only one part of the building could be added onto a second floor. There's also this multiplicity of mechanical systems um, and these things that were just so difficult for a museum to deal with, like crossing over from the, the loading dock from art in, um, into galleries across public spaces. So really functional problems as, as well. Um, and here's what it looks like, like um, this um, conglomeration of different additions. And so um, there was this other factor of people getting lost and also the fractured art path. So our main objectives from a functional standpoint was really to clarify um, and to make it functional again. And it ended up that this building really separated out into four kind of parts. There were galleries, a school on the left, um, a potential circulation down the middle, and then uh, theater on the right and administration on the upper right. Um, so, and as we were working on this, we discovered that there was an existing, the first, the very first building that was built in, in 1937 um, was still there and it was underneath everything. So there was also a historic building buried in this. Um, so the beautiful thing about this uh, four part um, party and a simple circulation down the middle was that we could somehow e expose and reveal and re repair the original building that was down there. Um, the other issue I think is just that this is a building in, not in a park, which it should be, but a building in a parking lot, all the black part is asphalt. And so they asked us if we could somehow connect out to the park and make it again, connecting inside to outside. This is Arkansas um, geology and, and its natural topography. It's a very interesting place um, that um, I, I think it's the best kept secret, you know, in the US, you can you can go there. Um, so could the, could the circulation somehow um, edit through the building and connect into these different galleries um, and be an architecture of circulation, but also of connection um, and, and 
excitement. Um, so we have this, these are just early sketches of the sprout, the sprout that is sprouting out to outside the museum on both the north and the south. Um, and here's a more refined plan as it evolved in, into this, um, really an edit, I think, of this existing to make it future-proof it um, and make it a more enduring building. And there, there you see the model that, that kind of really uh, shows what the the spine or this what I call the sprout uh, does to to bring these different disparate elements together and at the same time create this breakout space that people need to talk about what they saw um, restaurant a cafe and a cultural living room um, at either end of the circulation um, we're also navigating across um, a kind of sectional divide. And these are just further sketches. And I I can I can't wait to show you what this is looking like. Um and also again, like making their collections somehow come alive so that people can see what's going on behind the walls. Um, here's our massive physical model that really was important to understand and bring all these people together. I think it's interesting to um to also note um Jeremy, th this project is, um, I think they would have read, there were voices that wanted to just get rid of this building altogether. And, but it was possible to, to find a way. And actually this team, I don't know if you can see this picture, but this is all the people uh, behind this project, the architects, the landscape architects, the, the owners, the owners rep, everyone, it, they're all women. <laughs> that I've, I've never had a project like that was 100% women. That was pretty crazy. Um, and it's amazing. So this is um, the, the sprout and down, looking down the center of it, um, really letting light into the core of this place with the kind of um, these roofs that um, have Clara story light and highlighting the functions that are going on right there, like the art school, for example, and giving it a present, as well as the theater space, uh, the children's theater, um, new galleries that off to the left, um, and the cultural living room straight ahead. Um, and then in this courtyard, revealing that 1937 building um, and creating space around it that you can get up close to it. And that was one of their um, sculptures that they really wanted to, the Henry Moore that they really wanted to exhibit once again. Um, so I do have a, like just a little walkthrough. We can um, go through part of it. Um, this is just still, of course, it's in construction now, but this is just um, giving you a sense of what creating a space, you know, really in focusing on the space as opposed to, and the organizing principle um, as opposed to a brand new, you know, giant um, exterior building. And I think this is, um, this is going to give new life to an existing institution and give that space for people to um, have social connections. Um, and now you can see as we're turning around, this is the cultural living room. Of course, it will have furniture, but as you turn around, you can see um, you're next to um, and framing the original 1937 building.
um, that is it as after we kind of peel back all the layers. Um, nice Art Deco little gem. Um, and this part is really the, the one part of the building where we could put additional structure on top. And um, those are the additional drawing galleries on the top and the ground floor becomes uh, really a study center, um, collections and um, really making this a functional museum once again. Um, so, and then you can see, start to see some of the uh, roof shapes um, sprouting out into the landscape as they are poured um, and how this architecture really, it does a good job of leading you through and helping you discover what's in the museum and giving the visitors space to have this additional uh, social interaction, a uh, place to discuss, a uh, place to come together. And, and um, again, really not about isolation at all. And here are some views down the, the main corridor that, that ties all of these different um, programs together. And finally, that is the, um, the view of the, the south end of the Sprout going out now into the park and connecting people and, and allowing uh, the museum to go from inside to outside. So with that, um, Jeremy, um, I'm wrapping it up and I'm excited to talk to you more about the subject or any, anything else you wanted to talk about. Good, well, I think you've uh, excited me and, and an audience uh, about this because I think one of the remarkable things about what you're doing is to update, um, not just for, you know, sort of generic um, 21st century, but for uh, a COVID and post-COVID area, two um, concepts which um, don't perhaps originate in the 19th century, but were given enormous... Uh, 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 had enormous influence in the 19th century. One was the encyclopedic museum of natural history, almost the museum of everything, that the whole of knowledge could be contained within the building. As a graduate student, I spent a lot of time thinking about the Natural History Museum in Oxford, quite a small museum, but it was meant to be a representation of the entire natural world. Um, the trouble is, it was designed in the 1840s and finished in the 1850s, by which time Darwin had published The Origin of Species, and the whole model on which it was constituted um, was uh, uh, redundant. It was, it was quite extraordinary. And I guess you're finding something like that with the American uh, Natural History Museum too. Um, but also then the second 19th century concept, I think you're challenging in the last project in Arkansas, it's the idea of the Gesamtkunstwerk. And it's not to reject it completely, but it's to reconstitute it in, in an interesting way. And perhaps a connecting thread here is how you're bringing people together. As you said, this is not about isolation. It's much more about uh, collectivity and communal activity. Is, is that a fair point, that you're taking these two 19th century themes, but, but making them much more interactive than they ever were? Absolutely. And the thing that is necessary for, for doing that, not only for the visitors, but also for the, um, the staff, the scientists, the researchers, um, they need to come together now, too, because they're 
the whole model of, of these silos of information um, that comes from the early museums um, is being broken down. And if you look at most of the discoveries that are happening today, it's, it's in places where there is interdisciplinary um, research and um, things that aren't normally coming together, coming together, especially with with data, I mean, data science um, is in is in every single um, scientific inquiry, and so this um, that is overlaid onto everything. So now we, so both for the visitors to become um, socially connected, that's one of the things that is drawing them to the museum today, um, as well as for the people that work there. Um, and when I showed early on the MRI machine that where the scientists were coming together and using this tool, um, that inspired us to, to say, why, why don't we build upon this? Uh, that was a little machine in the back corridor. Why don't we build upon this and, and create social space for the researchers? So after they finish scanning the object, they can um, move out into a space and talk about what they saw or just talk to each other. And, and that's, I think, the power of museums and encyclopedic museums, especially because people are coming there for all different reasons. Um, how can you make it possible for them to, you know, bridge, bridge divides or learn from each other or enjoy um, this more cosmopolitan idea of what a museum is as opposed to, um, you know, right now with everyone um, kind of uh, closing in and these becoming more insular politically, um, this is a wonderful place to to kind of break out of that and to um, expand one's horizons. Absolutely, and to understand the world uh, could be could be quite different. But it brings, I think, home a really important point about museums, often overlooked in people who visit them, which is their importance as research functions, whether or not they're attached to a university. All serious museums have uh, collections, archives, and they do undertake research. And I guess in Arkansas, in, in an art center, um, a lot of that comes from the School of Art, which is, as you were saying, part of the complex. Was there an ex is there an explicit um, policy in the uh, running the, of, of that center to uh, bring the, the, the products of the School of Art, whether it's by students or by faculty, into uh, public presentation in the public spaces of the center? Um, in fact, there, well, it, when we came to the project, they really, um, they were had grown organically over time and they didn't really have an explicit um, mission about that. Um, but they knew that they were popular and sustained and they're a beloved institution um, you know, people remember taking classes of pottery there, you know, when they were young and they went on to uh, be appreciative of all different arts. So it, it's, it, there is a very foundational aspect to that school. It's, it's not a, an art um, university. It's really a school for the public. It's, it's for anyone can take courses there, as well as the theater is really for anyone to take courses mind you, the faculty that are teaching it are quite accomplished. And so um, we have found ways in the 
to celebrate this. It seems that so many museums are looking for this mix of, you know, social space, um, educational space, performance, and this really had it all right there already. And, but, you know, so it was, it's what drew me to the project in fact. Um, and the, the issue is really about how to show it, expose it, um, celebrate this and create more synergies between the different programs. And so the, um, so there is a place for displaying work from the school and, um, you know, and people can see that people that visit to see drawings, uh, famous drawings, um, will also pass by student work and yeah. they might be able be inspired to take a class. So, so I think this combination is really powerful. Um, it was somewhat accidental, but now I think we're starting to bring it into um, a cohesive mission for that, the Arkansas Art Center. Absolutely, and, 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 and a wonderful um, uh, extension of conventional art center activities to involve the public and allow them to do something in parallel with seeing exhibitions of work by well-known artists mm -hmm. or um, you know, famous plays or, or, or whatever. I think that, that, that's a, a wonderful experience. Um, but I just want to probe this, this a little bit more about the sort of encyclopedic role of museums. I, I guess in natural history museums, that still can be sustained up to a certain point. But in um, art museums and art centers, it would be very difficult to say you can produce an encyclopedic collection that can be reflected spatially. I mean, in the way a conventional 19th century art museum had, you know, it would have its prehistory, um, you know, possibly non-European in, in the lower levels. And then you would gradually work up through the art of the Middle Ages to the Renaissance, to the 18th century, to the Romantic movement. And then if you were lucky um, into sort of early modernism, the early 20th century. Um, now, that has completely broken down, it seems to me. And I, I wonder if you can say a bit more about the spatial configurations that you use uh, and how they work with the curatorial policy in, in the Arkansas Center. Mm -hmm. Yes, I think um, this, uh, on that note, when you're exhibiting work, the, the curators are thinking about things much differently, of course, today and trying to put, make things more contextual, not only showing um, a specific type, but maybe, um, things that other arts, art um, production that was going on simultaneously or more uh, giving people a better picture of wh what they're seeing. Um, so for, for that, it really needs um, this flexibility designed in, um, but also a kind of um, approach that will allow people to see multiple things simultaneously as opposed to serially. Um, in our galleries at the um, Arkansas Art Center, we're um, giving some, alt we were a bit limited because of the footprint of the building up below that we're using, but a rectangular building that can also be navigated on the diagonal. Um, so that to give flexibility in how things are um, displayed and, and give the curators more room to be inventive. And that I think will be ultimately give the museum a longer life and um, more relevance. If, if things can be 
adjusted and, and moved within it. Uh, I think that it's at the moment, this is the best way to address this. Just like you mentioned, Jeremy, complete, um, um, complete transformation of the way that um, museums are thinking about showing their collections. And um, as well as there are major discussions going on about what are in the collections and where the, and should they be, you know, should they be there? Were they um, obtained in the best possible way? <laughs> they, do they belong to someone else? Those are things that are going on, discussions that are really um, interesting discussions in terms of collections today in, in art museums. Absolutely, and and of course, you know, no no easy solution to them because on in in that sense, every individual object has its own history and its own provenance and possibly its own rightful location. But one of the things about this that strikes me about what you're saying is uh, you can make a much more um, intriguing experience for the visitor um, who can begin to make their own links and their own route through a museum. I mean, one of the things that I find slightly frustrating about a lot of conventional museums is that there is a set route that you have to go through them. And I will always try and do that in reverse, or at least try and break that route, because I don't like to be told what I should be seeing in what sequence. And I think, you know, one of the worst uh, museums in that sense is uh, is the Louvre in Paris, where, you know, you, you, you basically have to follow a route and then, you know, you have to fight your way through the crowds out, uh, in front of the Mona Lisa and then um, you, you can gradually work your way through. It's much more enjoyable if you can set your own route and indeed yeah. you can then look at the works that you want to look at. Which is uh, really the thought behind in the American Museum of Natural History, coming back to this branches of knowledge and um, allowing people to make choices, um, but still be able to know where they are, I think is really key. I mean, no one likes to be told what direction to go in. Look at the way that grocery stores are today with COVID, with arrows on the floor. I mean, I'm always going the opposite direction of the arrow for some reason. So, um, it's very hard to, especially when you see something interesting, you're drawn to it. Um, so this flow uh, is, is though we still think that um, there is value to some kind of organization of elements and, and the critique that science brings to um, how things are organized is ongoing. I mean, of anyone, they are the most self-critical group about how they're organizing things uh, to go together. Um, but that now has to be um, combined with the knowledge of how people learn. Uh, one of the things I, I came across as in the research for these projects was just the way that um, humans process information. It's not very um, text oriented. So when you come across a, a plaque in a museum at, which has a lot of text, your brain is just not ready to receive that kind of information because uh, the first thing that the human brain does is try to establish a sense of place and space. Where am I? Where am I going? And that that's really directly related to architecture. So the first thing people sense and what their brain is operating on is the architecture. I love that. <laughs> but, but so 
um, how do we make these collections be able to be absorbed and to taken into account and learn about? And so I think one of the keys there is really allowing people to break out of exhibit space, have social space, have you know unprogrammed space adjacent to galleries that allow people to uh, to really process and you know so that it they don't feel um, obliged to read those uh, panels every every minute of the time they're in there. Yes, and I'm reminded of, of, of another museum in America, um, the, the Barnes Collection in Philadelphia, where mm -hmm. Barnes, who, who had made a fortune out of, I think, eye drops or something like that, uh, put together an extraordinary and very diverse collection. And he wanted completely to reconstitute ideas about the history of art and to allow people to under, develop their own appreciation of art mm -hmm. through looking at the way the hang worked. So you would have the yeah. most extraordinary things next to each other. I mean, as I remember from seeing it, um, you have a lot of sort of uh, fleshy young women uh, painted by Webmar <laughs> alongside, you know, sort of sickly bodies from 15th century devotional paintings. And it's, it's, it's disconcerting and jarring, but something that conventional uh, art historian curators would find very disturbing. And I think this, in the best sense, rediscovers the idea of architecture being didactic. And I think that's really um, the, the, the great achievement of both these two projects, very diverse though they are, but there is an underlying coherence uh, to what you're uh, doing with them. So thank you very much for telling us about them. And I'm afraid we are now more or less out of time, but thank you, Jeannie, and, and great to see you and hear about the projects. Thank you, Jeremy.